Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome to Top of the Morning on the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. Our conversation today will touch on a variety of timely topics, including early reflections on the Q1 reporting season and the road ahead, along with an update on the SPAC market, sustainable investing, and more. So joining me here on the line for the conversation today, glad to welcome back Jason Dreho, Head of Asset Allocation Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office. So Jason, good Good morning to you. Uh, looking forward to hitting on a variety of topics with you this morning. Welcome back. All right, thank you. Good morning, Dan. Uh, Jason, maybe to begin, I know the Q1 corporate reporting season, it did kick off last week. We did hear from a lot of the big banks. Uh, much lies ahead of us, though I am curious, Jason, to hear your early reflections on the results we've seen thus far and how those results might have translated to market sentiment, market behavior uh, throughout the course of late last week. So, you know, it's mostly the the big banks or the financials that reported last week, that was sort of the dominant storyline. They just kind of began late last week. You know, the numbers from the banks for Q1 were very strong. Uh, great capital market activity from underwriting, you know, from deal making. So that was good. Uh, where there was, I guess, not a concerning time, but, like, you know, definitely there's a little more sluggishness on bank lending, which, you know, might in other situations be, you know, a bit of a, a red flag or at least a yellow flag. But I think what it appears to be is a situation where, uh, you know, lending is down because demand from both consumers and, and corporates and businesses is actually down because they are just so flush with cash. You're seeing, you know, households pay down credit card debt, you know, corporates pay down, you know, uh, corp, uh, you know their revolver agreements. Uh, capital markets are wide open for companies that want to go and issue bonds. Uh, so, you know, even some major banks last week issued, you know, had offerings of like $15 billion worth of, of bonds. Uh, to the public markets. So I think it's more of a sign of just, there's just not a lot, lot of need for bank lending at this point in time because people have other sources of capital. Uh, in terms of the market reaction, uh, look, the market was up last week, but I think banks you know, underperformed slightly. So on the news, there was a slight underperformance relative to the market, which would indicate that you know a lot of good news was already expected. Uh, so I think that if we sort of extrapolate that, I think it tells, it that, tells us that you know, expectations for Q1 earnings really for the whole year quite high so it's a you know, reasonably high hurdle um, you know that said you know we're looking at roughly 30 percent earnings growth in q1 uh so q1 this year versus q2 last year and just a little over 30 percent for the whole year uh so i think that's you know good numbers as expected uh, i think you know what um you know what you know, what look for is kind of you know what do we see as earnings season kind of ramps up in terms of you know, kind of future guidance uh, any potential stress points that companies are identifying. Jason, thank you for those observations, including some thoughts on how the U.S. large cap banks performed relative to the broader market, despite those results you had shared with us. So as a follow-up, I'm curious, looking out over the next few days, the week ahead, what will you be keeping an eye on? I know we'll have further earnings. We'll be hearing from the ECB, European Central Bank, a bit later this week, and even movement within the 10-year Treasury. I know last week it came down as low as one spot five five uh, this morning i think we're around the one spot six but what are your thoughts jason and what will you be watching out for over the next week well i think it's continued focus on earnings uh and it's, it's the numbers themselves certainly but it's also some of the details that would matter there's a lot of focus on profit margins you know the concerns about inflation you know rising particularly input costs going up there's there's many anecdotes of uh, of input costs rising and we can actually see it in the official inflation data so any further evidence that this is potentially impairing your profit margins, because that could you know, be a bit of a downside risk to earnings dollars. We don't think it's going to be a significant factor because, well, some of the input costs could go on higher. 
typically profit margins are also a function as much based on top line revenue growth. And if we're seeing very strong, you know, sales revenue, that, that would sort of negate potentially some of the, the concerns about profit margins, but that's something to kind of, you know, watch out for as well as kind of guidance for the rest of this year. Now, and we get a variety of companies, especially some big name, uh, you know, kind of, you know, bellwether stocks across different sectors. You know, I think they're a pretty good reading on sort of the state of the overlooked, you know, economy and academic activity. So that's, that's the number one focus. There's not a lot of major economic data this week after the past two where we've seen, you know, from, from employment data, from retail sales, from manufacturing information. So relatively light on the economics front. Uh, and we're probably not going to get a notch on the policy side because uh, the Fed is not in a blackout period until its next FOMC meeting next week. And I think for the moment, uh, you know, there's, there's just more background noise in terms of the fiscal policy developments on the infrastructure plan. Uh, so I think what the other thing I was going to look at is some of the more market dynamics, and you alluded to the decline in rates last week, which, given the strong economic data, seems to be much more related to kind of positioning, uh, you know, perhaps a bit of a, a pullback after maybe overshooting on the upside when we saw the big move higher in rates in the first quarter. Now they've kind of pulled back a little bit. I think we're going to see, you know, maybe a little bit of a rebalance in the market there. But if we see signs this week of the 10-year staying of that, you know, from that 1.55 level or even trending a little bit higher, that may be the near-term low, you know, depending on what they are, you know, the, how the data keeps coming in. Um, and also, you know, we continue to believe there'll be a reflation trade that goes on for the next you know, six months, which would entail higher rates through year-end, but also sectors like financials, like energy, uh, small-cap, mid-cap stocks, you know, doing well. Uh, they've struggled a little bit for the past month. Last week, it was more of a neutral, you know, balance across different styles. Um, I think the overall, you know, tone for the market, though, still needs to be kind of, you know, risk on. But seeing some of those market dynamics, you know, play out could give us a bit of indication, like where investors are looking next to, you know, to put on risk as we continue to kind of move through the earnings season and more economic data comes to confirming a very, very strong recovery in the second quarter. Well, thank you, Jason, for that preview, as well as that explanation on the movement in rates we have been seeing over the past week or so. And many of the topics you shared with us, I'm sure my colleague Griffin Marie will be recapping on the weekend review preview top of the morning on Friday of this week. So we'll look forward to that. I do want to switch gears a bit, Chase, and maybe we can check back in on a topic that we have previously covered here on the podcast quite a few times, that being the SPAC market uh, coming off uh, strong momentum in 2020. Um, I'm curious, Jason, how did the SPAC market perform over Q1 of 2021, and what might be some of the implications of recent regulatory developments to investor participation in the SPAC market and the market's momentum? Well, if you were to characterize the, the Q1 story for SPACs, it was very much in like a line, out like a lamb. Uh, the year began with a bang. I think it was you know, maybe uh, already January 3rd or 4th. Uh, very early in the year, there was a number of new SPACs were being created every single day, which led to a very toward pace uh, throughout the whole quarter. Uh, 283 SPACs were created. They, they went public to an IPO, raising a total of $93 billion uh, to fund acquisitions. Uh, for context, those are higher numbers than all of last year. So in, in the first quarter, and the bulk of that incurred really through the first two weeks of March, was already stronger than last year. It was a pace that ultimately was unsustainable, because if you extrapolate those numbers for the full year, we're, we're looking at over 1,000 SPACs, like almost 1,100 SPACs, created, you know, raising, you know, $350 billion. Uh, there's simply not enough private companies that they can acquire to take public right now to be able to kind of fulfill that, that essential demand you know, in the next two years in which they have to kind of complete an acquisition. So all moderation of pace and supply was was likely. Uh, the returns were very strong throughout the, at least the first six weeks, and we saw this going back into last November, 
a rise in SPAC share prices uh, that continued very strongly up into you know, mid uh, mid February, and then we saw a bit of a you know you know a popping up so to speak of, of the prices, uh, and part of that was attributable to the rise in rates. Uh, you know, as the rise in rates happened throughout the quarter, it really accelerated starting around the second week of February, continuing on into the second week of March, during which time the 10-year Treasury yield was up about 47 basis points. This matters because as rates rise, you know, the opportunity cost of holding kind of growth stocks and SPACs are definitely in the, in the spec of the kind of growth you know, category. It becomes, uh, you know, you know, more expensive. And just from a pure valuation perspective, we know that holding everything else constant, if you get as much as a 10 basis point rise uh, in, in the discount rate that you're using for, say, the 10-year yield for to value SPACs, for a, a company that has a PE multiple of 40, that's going to lead to a 4% decline. And if it's a 75 basis point move, roughly that would translate into around a 20% decline in the valuation. And that's sort of what we saw, that from kind of peak to trough, the SPAC kind of index was down around 25, 20 to 25% from kind of February to March. Uh, and it hasn't really kind of bounced back since. So it's sort of, you know, poked, you know, at least a little bit of a bubble that was forming. And it was clear if you look at just the performance of SPAC share prices around the merger announcements. So as a reminder, when a SPAC goes public, it's created, its intention is to buy a company, but there's no real news until the company actually, the SPAC announces they're going to acquire a company. So the share price should be relatively flat around the $10 offer price until we get news of this you know, acquisition. And then it usually pops and then kind of, you know, you know, moves from there. What we saw is that the price prior to a merger announcement, like, you know, 30 days prior, up to a couple days prior, the share price, you know, was rising a little bit in the fourth quarter. In January, it was rising even more. And by February, uh, it was rising by 25%, you know, in the sort of the roughly the four weeks prior to the announcement. It would jump another 15% announcement. And then post-announcement, it was actually declining 10%. Fast forward to March, that whole kind of run-up, you know, was basically flat. The pop on announcement was, you know, was even slightly negative. And then afterwards, the next set of 10 days afterwards, it was relatively flat. So what we saw really by the time we got to February was a classic sort of buy on the rumor, sell on the news, because as the prices were in it prior to the announcement, in theory, there's no real official announcement. It was just purely speculation on what was being announced. Uh, and so what's happened since then is a lot of that sort of frothiness that's been taken out of the market. A lot of the speculation uh, has really been sort of removed, um, which is ultimately kind of healthy. It's, you know, it was just kind of excessive. Uh, and even as you talk about some of the, you know, the potential regulatory issues, I think it, it's helping to get the SPACs market back to a, a more state sustainable kind of long-term trend. That does, doesn't mean that couldn't be more pain in the head in the near term for SPACs, but at least compared to where they were, um, we've seen almost like a full life cycle from ramping up in speculation in uh, the fourth quarter last year, peaking in February, and now kind of you know, moderating to quite an extent uh, as we moved into April. Thank you, Jason, for the update on the SPAC market and your thoughts as to why the momentum has slowed down a bit relative to the excitement we witnessed last year, 2020, and during the early days of 2021. So this is something we'll continue to follow very closely. Uh, maybe one more topic we can hit on closing out with positioning, though we'll We'll treat it a bit differently this week in consideration of the fact that this week happens to be Earth Week and UBS, as we know, is a strong advocate of sustainable investing, a topic we cover on the podcast channels. Our listeners might be familiar with the monthly Sustainable Investing Perspectives podcast on the UBS Conversations podcast channel. But Jason, from your vantage point, how and why should investors consider incorporating sustainability into their portfolios? Well, let's start with the question of, I guess, of how. Uh, Really, in the past two to three years, the amount of options and the ability for investors to 
partake in sustainable investing has grown you know, quite significantly. Uh, and it's become an area where there's both kind of solutions and product, but also information that allows people to you know, better you know, capture some opportunities that they want to express. Uh, and this applies you know, across different asset classes, you know, primarily you know, public equity markets and also public fixed income markets. But it's also increasing a focus in, in private markets as well. And there's different ways that, as we think about you know, how to kind of invest sustainably, different ways to approach it. You know, the, the, the more the traditional approach would be used sort of like, you know, an ESG lens or focus to evaluate different investments, to evaluate them on environmental, social and governance criteria. Uh, and, and you can do that by, you know, screening for companies or issuers or, or investors or, uh, or issuers that are, you know, score wellness categories, but also companies that are looking to strive to improve in some way if we're really focused on making a difference. Companies that are doing a good job, that's great, but focusing on companies that are looking to, you know, to do a better job in each of these, that's an area where investors can sort of allocate you know, capital, especially on the equity side, but on fixing them as well. But I think there's, there's some limitation to that approach uh, because you're, you're kind of evaluating companies and what they're doing. I think for, you know, there's certainly a number of ways to, to do that, but I think increasingly the, what we try to emphasize is more sort of direct impact investing, which is you're actually allocating capital in a way that could achieve desired sustainable objectives um, this typically uh, entails more kind of private markets investments, but it could also be done through you know, public investments and strategies that you know, certainly UBS has, has worked with partner firms to create an offer to our clients. It can be done on both the equity and the fixed income side. I think it also addresses maybe some concern about for those who want to get in the area, like how do they actually evaluate and measure the, the consequence of their investments, which through ESG scoring, that's good, but it's also maybe you know, not you know, the full assessment of the way to see if you've actually had direct impact. So there's different ways to achieve it. You know, impact investing is sort of what we've tried to prioritize. I think sort of thematic investing kind of along the same lines is investing in companies that are focused on a certain area, such as you know, clean tech, uh, electric vehicles, you know, battery, clean water, things of that sort. Um, those are areas you can specifically target as well. So the way to think about it and also the solution set has, has grown dramatically. Um, the way we ultimately kind of, you know, has put this together is offer a sustainable or SI mandate uh, that has, you know, investments in all these different kind of categories. So it is sort of a turnkey solution for, for our clients if that's an approach they want to take. But, you know, those different building blocks are also ways in which your clients can express specific views of that that they so desire. In terms of why, I mean, there's obviously, a, you know, a desire, increasing focus for investors to allocate their capital in ways that, you know, you know have some sort of positive social impact, uh, you know, through sustainable investing. Uh, and there's different ways you can again, approach it. But even if you are just looking purely from an investment perspective, I think the good thing to know is that by investing through sustainable means, you don't necessarily have to sacrifice performance. And we've seen that just even over the past two years where our sustainable offerings, especially on the equity side, but you know, across both equities and fixed income, have performed as well as or even better than very sort of standard broad uh, benchmarks for different asset classes that are not SI focused. So what it's telling you is that you can get sort of the sustainable benefits without having to sacrifice your performance. Uh, and that's a positive uh, development because that has been certainly an apprehension among investors that they felt like, well, if we're going to invest for good, we're also going to ultimately have to sacrifice. And this the past couple years demonstrates that that's not necessarily the case. But even more than that, I think what's becoming clear is that the framework of thinking about sustainable investing, certainly ESG investing, sort of integrated into your whole process, also helps almost on the risk management side. Because increasingly, the, the market values of companies are very sort of intangible related. A lot of that is tied to factors that could be influenced by ESG conditions. So if something happens, you know, and a company is exposed in a way that we weren't purposely assessing, 
if that market event or that develops in the marketplace for the economy, that could have a negative impact on their share price. So just on making sure you understand their exposures and how that could impact the stock price is a way to sort of avoid potential pitfalls in your portfolio. So I think what we're seeing in terms of why the performance for, for sustainable strategies tends to be good is in part driven by the fact that it's also avoided, able to avoid some of the more maybe downside risks that without that approach you would have missed. So I think just from a why, I think just from an investing perspective, it's proving to be you know, a good way to evaluate companies and be aware of what's happening because increasingly the markets are trading on this information. So if you don't give that consideration, uh, you may be also almost leaving some returns on the table. This is all in addition to the benefits that you would get uh, and you can sort of achieve by just having a sustainable lens through your investments uh, as well. So lots of different ways to how you can invest that are going, but also good reasons now why to invest. And least think to and understand how this can impact your overall portfolio. Jason, very productive conversation to begin the week. Appreciate your insights into an assortment of topics that are on the minds of investors, including how investors can approach an allocation into sustainable investing. Uh, several of these topics covered today we can certainly follow up on during future conversations. I will point out later this week for the month of April, we will be having our monthly How Should I Be Positioned podcast conversation. I won't give away our special guest. I will say that he did join us up in the studio a couple of years back, but we will be touching on some of the items that we covered this morning and expanding on them. So looking forward to that conversation with you in a couple of days, Jason. Uh, likewise, Dan. And again, today we have been joined by Jason Dreho, Head of Asset Allocation for the Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office. As a reminder to our clients and listeners, the UBS Chief Investment Office authors a variety of publications and blogs that touch on timely market developments, asset classes, as well as portfolio allocation. Uh, these resources can be located up on UBS.com forward slash CIO. And of course, for clients of UBS, you can contact your financial advisor if you would like to learn more or receive a copy of any of the publications or the blogs directly. Top of the Morning is part of the UBS Market Moves podcast channel, which is available where podcasts are found, including on iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Pandora. Visit UBS.com forward slash studios to view the entire podcast offering, as well as the new UBS trending video series. From UBS Studios, I'm the Dan Cassidy, thank you for joining us. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliate, UBS. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient and is published for informational purposes only. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients globally, UBS AG and its subsidiaries offer both investment advisory services and brokerage services. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. In the USA, UBS Financial Services, Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG and a member of FINRA SIPC. For information, please visit our website at UBS.com forward slash working with us. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at UBS.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.